Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ben Garant. And, and he said, zombies on a cruise ship. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to remind you that stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. I always want to say fingerprints. That doesn't make any sense. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, just using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus post postage, and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is thomas blondette behind me now and we're calling this week's episode under the surface three stories that were actually recorded a while back at some of our live shows we're kind of digging back into the archives to bring out stuff that you know we've been meaning to play for a long time 
kind of a crazy season for us right now at risk because we're preparing our book a sort of a best of risk in book form and that's taking a lot of our time and attention we're doing six live shows this month and we just came out with our halloween episode last week now i'm not sure if we'll do a halloween episode next year we were thinking maybe we could do a best of halloween so that we would give ourselves an extra year to get pitches because man it is hard to get pitches for scary stories that would be appropriate for a show like that. I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. Listen, you can pitch us any time of year at riskdashshow.com slash submissions. Pitch us your scary stories, and we'll just have to see. One thing I was especially excited about on that Halloween episode was all the music and sound design that went behind three different stories. Remember, there was the siege by Ansley Isham, uh, where her house was under siege by strange men. There was Burke Hefner's story, which was recorded in front of a live audience, but then we added some atmospheric music and you know wind howling and stuff like that under that. And then there was that insane story with all that exorcism-y vibe to it by Erica Steherwald. Uh, lots going on in the audio realm in those stories. You know, I'm very aware that some people listen to Risk on headphones when they're outside and big, loud subways and cars are passing to them. Some people listen to Risk playing off an iPhone across the room. And some people listen from stereos. So we're very, very curious, actually, to get feedback from the fans of, how does the mix sound to you? Can you really hear all the subtleties that are going on in stories like that? Maybe take a look particularly back at that Halloween episode and let us know how things sound to you. I, there was once a, a Risk fan who wrote in and he said, I hate when you say that Talking Heads or whatever band is behind me now because he says, from the way I listen to the show, the device I'm listening to, it doesn't sound like there's anything behind you now. Sounds like you've turned the volume on the music all the way off. So it's very strange for us to get a feel for how things actually sound to people listening on different devices. So feel free to write me at kevin at risk-show.com if you have any feedback about how the show sounds, because man, oh man, to me, the music and sound design on those radio stories is one of the things I love the most about the show. One of the things I am most proudest of about the show. Our episode editor, Jeff Barr, does a phenomenal job in so many ways week after week. We have a new, you know, a sort of an assistant editor. Uh, John LaSala worked on some of the stories last week as well. So, you know, we're all very curious to get your feedback about technical issues sometimes and maybe i should say just one more thing about the halloween episode i don't know how many times i've actually put this in words on the show at this point i feel like i should just make it our tagline we at risk do not necessarily endorse the points of views of every storyteller we are not necessarily condoning the choices of the storytellers or trying to promote their interpretations of things. 
We are not journalism. We are not psychiatrists. We are presenting what individuals interpret from their own perspective. Now, do I, Kevin Allison, <laughs> believe in ghosts? Or anyone on my staff, does anyone on my staff believe that there really are some circumstances where an exorcism is called for? It's beside the point. We've had hundreds of stories on the show about mental health. And yes, I can see if you if you had not heard the other 360 or so episodes and just heard last week's Halloween episode where there was a story in which it seems that we are quote-unquote demonizing someone with a mental health issue. I think at Halloween time I am especially able to take things with a huge grain of salt, but we would hate for listeners to have heard a story and started to get the impression that people who are struggling with mental illness are actually possessed by Satan. Of course, people who are struggling with mental illness need compassion and psychiatric care. Okay, all right. In a little bit, we're going to hear from a very good friend of mine. Uh, ben Grant was a member of my sketch comedy group, The State. He has, you know, written a ton of movies. You might also know him from Reno 911. Ben has done the show many times at our show in Los Angeles, and actually, he's going to be there again. On November 18th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles, and Ben will be telling another story there that night. But before that, we're going to hear from Thomas Attila Lewis. Thomas shared this story the last time that Risk was at Mass Mocha, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. You can find him on Twitter at TomDog. Here he is now, Thomas Attila Lewis, with a story we call... Strange Days with the Head Sales Guy. So I'm I'm here uh, to talk about something that happened to me at work in the mid-2000s, and I'm only able to finally tell you about it now. I finally have come to grips with what happened to me uh, back then. The situation was I really needed a job. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure everybody has kind of gone through that in their lives, and, and I was under a lot of pressure to be working. I had moved to rural New England from the West Coast like a quote from one of my favorite movies, Zorba the Greek, he says, my situation, I had a wife, children, a house, the full catastrophe. <laughs> and that was my situation. I had a little girl and a house and I needed to keep these things going and there was a lot of pressure to, to do it. So, I, I mean, I love my daughter, even though she's 15 now, I'm the most annoying person in the world to her. Now, uh, I still would do anything for her and I did anything for her then. I put up scaffolding, I did catering, I, I made all sorts of compromises, and I found myself making a compromise to take on a job, even though I knew this was not a good situation. So what it was, I, I got recommended to go work at a small company in another kind of rural New England town, about 40 minutes from where I lived. I didn't know anybody in this little town. It was 
kind of a, a tourist season. You, you kind of know if you're from around here what, what I'm talking about. The gentleman who interviewed me, he was a, a weird, he was a weird little man um, who owned this company of about four or five people. He had founded the company in the 1970s during the running craze, you know, like in Forrest Gump, everyone was running, you know, and, and he, he lucked into selling some running accessories and that's what he, he kept doing, except the running accessories hadn't changed in 40 years. Okay, we're talking about like terry cloth headbands and wristbands, okay, and, and these huge ugly safety vests that like a garbage man could wear or a runner could wear. Um, they hadn't changed at all. And uh, he brought me in there to, to, to get my company on the internet. My kids keep saying, you gotta get the company on the internet, dad, come on, come on, you gotta do this. So that's why you're here, I guess, is what he told me. And, he was a, a, a little bald man, very gruff. He had like no shoulders, like a very cylindrical looking person. And the, the, the weirdest thing was he was this strange color that at the time I was like, that's just bizarre. But now in the era of Trump, I recognize it's a spray tan <laughs> that he had on. You know, this man in his like, late 60s had this spray tan because he always wanted to look tan. I love Puerto Rico. I just want my company to keep going so I can keep going back to Puerto Rico. So he kept on trying to maintain this tan and he had these weird deep wrinkles all over him and he, with this color, this glistening color, he kind of looked like, you know, if you were doing pottery and wet clay, like a thumb. He looked like a thumb he looked like a thumb or maybe even a turd, like a fresh turd. He was this little annoying turd thumb man that I was gonna work for. And he talked over me, like I couldn't get a word in edgewise. He didn't wanna hear what I had to say and how to, how to help him out, like maybe update your products. People don't know what they want. People don't know, they don't know anything. So I show up to the office. Uh, he didn't interview me at the office, that was kind of weird. His office was right on the main street of this little town in this old building. And uh, I, I uh, go up the stairs, the offices were on the second floor. And there's a little uh, kind of reception area, a couple uh, ladies working there, some order fulfiller person and, and the receptionist accountant person who was um, a classic kind of New England spinster lady, very prim and proper and upright. And she's like, he needs to see you in his office. Like right when I got, like no names, nothing, just get, go into his office. So I go in, he's like, oh yes. And he closes the door and he says, okay, uh, I gotta tell you this. I gotta tell you this uh, right now. Cause uh, well, you know, my head sales guy. Okay, there's like four people here. There's like a sales guy. Okay, <laughs> he says, my head sales guy, uh, he's very upset. He's very upset. He, uh, he thinks this is a huge, huge mistake. You're, you're a huge waste of time and money. We don't need you. He's doing fine. We don't need you. So uh, I just had to tell you because he's really upset. All right, so let's go to your office. Like that, <laughs> like my first five minutes in the office, that's what's about to happen. This is not good. So we step into the hallway to encounter the head sales guy who's right there. And he's just like this, completely like nondescript, just kind of a mop of hair, and he wouldn't look at me in the face and said nothing to me and refused to shake my hand. Like he was like that mad, and he just stomped down the hall to this office at the end and slammed the door. So that's 
the first 10 minutes of being at this job, uh, my boss takes me down to the office that I'm supposed to be in. He's like, I don't know why he's so angry. I try to help things out and I gave him this great new office down here and he got even more mad. It's got high ceilings, its own AC unit, it's quieter, it's a much better room. Because he used to be in here, you know, and it's kind of small and, and uh, you're, you're right over the alley here and, and there's the school with the school noise. You know, it's, it's a much better office he has, but all right, well, here you go. And then he left. <laughs> and the thing was, it was a great little office. It had this big, big window that I could open. It was a early fall day. It was nice and warm. And well, yeah, there was an alley. And on the other side of the alley was a, uh, a chain link fence with that like windscreen fabric in it. And there was a school like 150 yards away, like a quaint, perfect postcard New England school, like a brick ivy covered with a, a shale roof. And it was a gorgeous little school. And this beautiful athletic field separated us, like a putting green. And I'm like, this, this is, what is, th this is not a problem. This is, maybe I can uh, get through this. And the first day was a blur, you know, just looking at 20-year-old catalogs of people like, uh, like looking like they should be in a uh, Olivia Newton-John music video, uh, basically, all day. And uh, went home, uh, went back to work the next day, and I go up the stairs, and the boss man's not there. It's a Friday, he doesn't come in on Fridays. So I go into my office and uh, say hi to the, the ladies in the reception area, and morning's a blur, afternoon comes, after lunch I, I come back up the stairs, and you know what, I can, I can hear some noise. I can hear some noise coming uh, out of the, the hallway from the direction of my office into the reception area. I'm like, oh, what, what is that, you know? And I, I go into my office, and the school was out, and there was a game happening on the athletic field, and it was a Catholic school, parochial school, and this was the girls' field hockey team playing uh, on, the, on the field, you know? And it was great, it was, there were coaches and parents watching, and the, the girls were running around, they had a little face mask on and the stick, and they had skirts. I didn't know there was a sport with uh, skirts, you wore skirts in, you learned something new. And uh, I, I'm watching, I'm watching, and a play comes by the chain link fence and they, they run by the chain link fence. And I keep looking down and on the alley side of the chain link fence, there's like a tear in that fabric. And there's somebody looking through at the game through a tear in the fabric. And, and I'm like, oh, someone else is, is watching the game there. That's kind of weird, why aren't they out over there? And I'm looking like, what is that person doing? It's a man, he's looking through, kind of hunched over and, and He's jacking off while watching these girls play the field hockey on the field. And I'm just like, oh my God, like this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, my girl might go to this school. Like what is, this is, this is horrible. So I pick up the phone and dial 911, you know, cause there's a guy jacking off while watching these children playing and you know, 911, uh, dispatch, this call might be recorded. What is the nature of your call? Uh, there's a guy uh, jacking off while watching kids play at this school here. Uh, and, you know, they can see your address and everything. And the dispatcher goes, because this is a small town, she goes, oh my God, my niece goes to school there. <laughs> Could you describe the man? And I'm like, 
uh, I'm looking at him and, and I like, and I really realized slowly that because I had only ever seen him once before, it's the head sales guy. <laughs> the head sales guy hunched over, jacking off, and then my, in my mind, like, I, like from another one of my favorite movies, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, okay? Tippi Hedren, when she, from shot to shot to shot, sees the car accident and then the gasoline pouring down the hill to the guy in the telephone booth lighting a cigar, my eyes go from the girls who are playing, and by the way, they have headbands on, our headbands. <laughs> my eyes go from them to the head sales guy, and by the way, I'm like, thanks for not shaking my hand uh, <laughs> yesterday, to the windowsill where my desk is up against the windowsill, and between my desk and the windowsill is one of those old-timey cast-iron radiators, you know, with the gaps, and stuffed into the gaps are used tissues. <laughs> and, and my brain puts together that this is what this guy's been doing for years in his office, and he's mad, not because I'm gonna come and put the company in there, because he got kicked out of his Jack office place. <laughs> While my brain processes this, the police car pulls up because we're like 400 feet from the, from the police station. It's literally up the street. The cop just has his lights on and no siren or anything. He pulls up and he opens the door and you know how the, the police radios are loud, you know, like, and that causes the head sales guy to turn and give the cop a full view of what he's doing. And the noise of that goes down the hallway and this prim and proper receptionist comes in and looks down and she goes, oh my God. The, 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 so that's why he's been closing the door every afternoon to his office. Like she put it, it, it was so, uh, and she also added in a very kind of New England way, I guess he's not coming back to work this afternoon. <laughs> so we just, like, that was it for that day of work. We just drifted out of the office. I went home. I was just happy to be home. I couldn't, I couldn't articulate what had happened at work that day. I was just happy to be there. Uh, on Monday, I'm driving in, I'm like, well, we're probably gonna have to have a meeting about, about how we're gonna deal with sales for the next month or two or something. Um, so I arrive at the office and I'm going up the stairs and there's the boss man at the top of the stairs. He says, uh, Tom, Tom, uh, come in my office, come in my office, I gotta talk to you. So I go in the office, he closes the door, he's like, all right, all right Tom, uh, don't be upset, but uh, 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 this isn't working out. Uh, I don't know why you had to see what you saw and why you felt like you had to call somebody. But I'm gonna have to let you go because I gotta get him back in here. He's my best sales guy. You know, if I have to sell some stuff, some running accessories or headbands and, and wristbands, he, he just sells it like that. It's like he's inspired or something. I don't know. I don't know what is inspiring him, but he just makes the sales and I gotta get him back in here. Um, 
I, I'm so shocked. I, I just managed to put the, a sentence together of, uh, so you're saying that his ability to sell your stuff is more important than the fact that he's using your office as a place to masturbate in front, you know, of children, of people you probably know, and that's what is important. And he said, oh, there's no, hey, hey, no need, no need to get nasty here. I didn't ask for that. <laughs> I didn't ask for that. So uh, listen, you'll get two weeks, okay? You were here for, uh, for two days, so it's a good deal. It's at-will employment, and hey, by the way, I know you didn't work that whole second day that you were here. So, um, you know, you're, you're making out great. You're doing fine, you're doing fine. So uh, I, I went home that morning and failed to adequately explain how I got fired because I saw somebody masturbating at work uh, to my family and um, I looked in the paper and it never came up that somebody got arrested for masturbating at this field. I guess that's sometimes small towns take care of that without it getting, I don't understand, I still don't understand uh, the, the small town thing, but, but uh, three months later I did see in the paper that company forced to sell to competitor due to staffing issues. So, <laughs> That's, that was the end of that, and that was a classic New England understatement of the situation. <laughs> I'm Thomas Attila Lewis. You guys have been great. Bitching about that sale you shot. Some son of a bitch don't want to buy land. Somebody don't want what you're selling. Some broad you're trying to screw, so forth. Let's talk about something important. A... B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you going to take it? Get mad, you son of a bitches. Get mad. You know what it takes? It takes brass balls. Uh, okay, okay. Um, so I'm Ben Garant. I'm a screenwriter mostly. I'm from a very small town uh, in Tennessee. When I was a teenager, I was a punk rock kid. So in uh, high school, really, really starting full on like sophomore year, like I had like black dyed with the egg whites, like Sid Vicious hair. And then I had uh, a mohawk for a while. You know, wore a ripped up uh, cramps t-shirt, bad music for bad people, and like uh, this great leather jacket that I stole from my brother that was like held together with safety pins. And I had uh, safety pins in my face for a while. <laughs> like, not in my ear or up here, but like there. And that like really, really freaked people out. And this, um, the way I got there, I'm 46 now, like the way I got there, I had two older brothers that were nine and 10 years older than me and they were really into Black Sabbath. 
And so they were, you know, those kids that you see in 70s pictures, like stick skinny with the big mops of hair with like the Black Sabbath t-shirt. Those were my brothers. And by the time I was like in junior high, they were lawbreakers. They stole cars. Like they, they were legitimately like trouble, trouble. So I knew to fucking keep my head down. Like I learned that from them. Like just don't get in too much trouble and let them take all the heat and I'll be okay. But we moved in the fifth grade from... Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which had like 2,000 people, to Farragut, Tennessee, which had like 15,000 people. And for, I was fucked. Like, um, so I wore like hand-me-down clothes and was barefoot. Like, I played barefoot, which you did in Murfreesboro. And then in Farragut, which was near Knoxville, which was a big town, people wore like OP and like polo and like it was the 80s. Like, and so... Like, from fifth grade on, I was, like, the weird kid. Not through intention, but just, like, I just looked strange. I looked weird. And I didn't really realize it until, like, the sixth grade. And I was like, nobody fucking talks to me. And I, and I ran for class president in sixth grade. And I know, because the person who counted the votes told me that I got two votes. But I, and I was like, oh, fuck. I thought I was doing really, really well. And, and, I, and it slowly started to occur to me, like, oh, wow, I, I don't... Nobody likes me. I read a lot. It didn't really hit me. And this is uh, the embarrassing reason that I became a punk rock, truly, was half my brother's record collection, 40%. And there used to be a show on TV called Real People. And it was Skip Stevenson and Sarah Purcell and Mark Russell and Pete Billingsley. And it was like, there's not really a show like it now, but they would go to small towns and like, talk to the guy who, he's going to break the world record for eating waffles. And they'd, you know, this guy's got a uh, potato chip collection that he's had for 40 years and that, like that was the show and in like when I was 12 or 13 they did a thing on punk rock they went to New York City and this crazy thing called punk rock and they played the rock lobster and they went to this party in New York where they had baby doll jello uh, when it was like they put a baby doll in jello and so it was like cool punk people going and like eating like jello off of it. And I was like, fuck, like I'm that. Like, like at 12, I was like, that's, wow, look at them. And like they would blur, they would give the, like on, this is CBS at eight o'clock on Wednesdays. And they gave the finger to the camera and it blurred it out. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, well, why do you do this? And like they interviewed these kids and these kids were like, because people are fucking stupid, man. People are so stupid and I was like yeah that's totally true I, I, it never occurred to me that yeah people are fucking assholes like and that's when it hit me and like so over the years I you know and I realized like my fucking pants have rips because they were cousin bills and and like I got them hand-me-down and so I just turned into this punk rock guy and looking back, a big, and then, then I, I started doing Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was 14, and then and I played at Kingston 4 at midnight, and that's when I met much older people, and I think some of them must have been like in their 30s, who did Rocky Horror, and that's, that's when they were like, well, because there was no internet then, and so you, you had to listen to record albums because someone told you about them, because in the South, there was no used record store, and even the college radio station didn't play punk. Uh, and so they gave me the cramps and it was like fucking yeah like listen to this stuff and Now looking back psychologically. I was a really unhappy kid. You know, I was pretty miserable I, I wasn't very happy like the pins in my face and all this stuff and I was expressing something and what I was expressing was look 
I know that none of you are gonna fucking like me, so I'm gonna not like you first, you assholes. Like, like so, and I think that all of you are fucking stupid, and not only do I think that, I want you to know that I think that. I want you to know that when I walk in, I'm not gonna try to like, fit in and get crushed. I'm gonna walk in not fitting in to start with, so fuck you. Like, what are you gonna do? Tell me I'm weird? I'm telling you I'm weird. And this was Farragut, Tennessee. So like, there were, you know, the, there were some college punks, but I, I drove a, a Datsun B210 that I bought from my Uncle Dan for 200 bucks, and you couldn't get in the passenger door. You had to go in through the other door because it was crushed. And I carried spray paint in the back, and all the Rocky Horror guys would paint on it. And so on the back, it, it was covered with, it looked like I was a big fan of uh, Return of the Living Dead, and so it looked like Suicide's car. And on the back, somebody had written, uh, Jesus died to take away your sins, not your minds. Like, uh, <laughs> and, and some Christians, Loved that. Like, like it was really weird. Like, like sometimes you, I would go by a church and they'd be like, yeah, that's so true. You know, I was like, fuck. Like, um, and on the door, there was like this bloody sort of gothic Batman symbol. And it was covered with like anarchy and random shit. And so I got pulled over a lot. And my tires were sliced four times. All four tires. So it was, and then Johnny the football team once pulled in behind me when I was trying to back out of the, college, uh, the high school parking lot and leaned in the window, a big football player, huge, huge dude, and said, why are you a fag? And like now looking back, I'm like, holy shit, like I was a straight white guy. Like what the fuck must it have been like to be anything else like down south back then? So that was the psychology of it. That's why I became that. And then I got the fuck out. I went to New York City. And I always had the theory when I was in Tennessee, I know from music and TV, we're not all like this. Like planet Earth, they're not all fucking rednecks. They're not all stupid, mean, dumb, etc. And when I got to New York, I was like, oh shit, yeah, they're not all rednecks. There's real people really doing stuff that affects the world and not just rednecks arguing over turf in like small town Tennessee. And so I sort of became happy. And I worked it out over a few years, and part of it was drug use, and part of it was creative fulfillment, and I, and I became like a, a happy guy, but I still was a fucking punk rock. I still thought people were fucking stupid, and I wanted everybody to know that I thought they were fucking stupid. And I still wanted to walk into places and not try to fit in and not try to play a game, but be like, hey, I'm walking in, I'm a freak, stay the fuck away from me. Like, uh... And even in New York, even when I was happy, I still had that kind of thing. And I still really, really felt that. And so I was a punk rock, and then I was in a college group in college, and that became the state on MTV. And so on MTV, we were this huge group. There was 11 of us. It was totally fine for me to still be this punk rock guy, to look like a freak and chain smoke marijuana and vandalize when we were invited to stuff. Because there were enough grown-ups in the group. David Wayne was a grown-up. From the time he was 18 when I met him, he was a grown-up. He knew that you need to make contacts, you need to be professional, this is how you do a career. Like, Mike Chan was a grown-up. So we had enough grown-ups in the group that I could be fucking Sid Vicious, Harpo Marx, nonsense guy. And as long as I kept writing sketches, I'd be fine. And I remember the day that I realized I needed to grow up. I remember the day I needed to stop doing that. And it was after the state broke up, I was on a show called Viva Variety. And season 
one or two, we went out on location to shoot a show, uh, sketches, like three sketches, and we were in the van back. And so the, I wasn't in the state anymore, and so I was like a writer and one of the producers of this show. And I was in the back of the passenger van, and we were going back home, and I was with some people in the makeup department who I knew. And I was in my Susie Sue t-shirt and my Doc Martens with my pants rolled up and the rips. And I pulled out a joint and lit it, and we all started passing it around like I always did. And I, when I lit the joint, I was aware that this like wave went through the van of like, what the fuck? Like, and it was different from everybody. Like the old Teamster driving looked at me in the rear view with such fucking disdain. It was like this 60-year-old guy. And he looked at me and you could read his mind, which was, I'm not going to say anything because you're going to fire me, but you're going to get us so fucked if we get pulled over. And I was like... Oh yeah, right. And like nobody knew me. Nobody. It was all I was like the youngest person there. I was 26. So I was the youngest person there by a few years. And I was like, "Oh, right." And everybody looked at me like some people thought, "What an asshole." Like what a Hollywood douchebag trying to look cool. And I was like, "No, like that's not me." And like every and nobody said shit. But it hit me like a ton of bricks of like I can't do this anymore. And it flooded back to me, all these meetings, like we would be on set for Viva Variety, and I'm with like 50 and 60 year old people who've been in the business for 40 years. And I'm like this punk rock like kid, and I'm telling them what I think, no, 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 like, that, don't cut there, like push in there. And they think I'm a fucking idiot because I reek of marijuana and beer and look like a fucking hobo, and they, and they, and they don't respect me. And so I made, I realized, like, I have to start pretending like I'm a grown-up when I'm around people, sort of. And so I rolled down, I, I bought, like, new shirts, and they all look the versions of this. Like, this is the costume since then. Um, <laughs> like, uh, and it's a costume. And, and so I rolled down the cuff of my jeans. I used to have them cuffed so that I could put out cigarettes in the cuff of my jeans when I was smoking on set, which you could do. I still have the docs. Most people don't notice uh, in showbiz. They don't look down. Um, and, I, and I have uh, new shirts that don't have holes in them. And that became the gear. When you start to wear a costume for a decade, that's not a costume anymore. That's not who you're pretending to be. That's who you now are. And people now know me for a long time. You know how like when you're, when you're working with somebody, especially in the restaurant industry, where everybody looks like super clean cut, all the waiters like clean cut, and they're like in a button down and khakis and everything. And then you get in their car and they turn on the radio, they turn on the car and the radio is just like, you know, it's just like speed metal. And you're like, who the fuck are you? You know, like you, you, like the, that, oh wow, you're not this button down guy. So I never grew out of punk rock. I just started wearing a different outfit and eventually you grow older and you change. But then five years ago, I did a screenwriting workshop at the CIA. <laughs> How I got there is a long, long story. But I went, I was in, somebody I met in Wyoming referred me to this cowboy writing workshop in Casper, Wyoming, which I did a couple of years later and it was great. And like I partied with these oil rig punk rock guys and it was really interesting, and I tried salvia, and it was great. And, and then, like, that next, the last day of it, and I was, like, so, like, hungover while I was teaching the screenwriting workshop with these old cowboy dudes. 
that I, I was just winging it. And afterwards, this woman said, hey, well, I have some friends who, who have a little writing group. Would you like to come and like, do this for us and just talk to us for a few hours? And I was like, absolutely. Sure, why not? And she gave me her card. And it was uh, marketing manager, no, no, communications manager, Central Intelligence Agency. And I was like, is that? And she was like, oh, yeah, like that, that is. Uh, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, fucking yeah, absolutely. And so I start contacting the head of this writing group, and his name was Scott, and he was in TED of North Korean intelligence. And we started emailing back and forth, and they do a full background check, and I have like this guy Miles in my family who was a communist, and I was like, is that gonna stop me from like, you know, like, and so, and, but I cleared everything, and they were super excited, and I went back and forth with this guy, and then I went to the fucking CIA in Langley. And when you put it on Google Maps, it doesn't come up. Uh, you, it, it, George Herbert Walker Bush, Central Intelligence, nothing. Like CIA, nothing. Like, and so they, they give you the, the directions for it, and you drive from Washington, D.C. up, and you pull in. There's a tiny, tiny little sign that says George Herbert Walker Bush for Intelligence. It's tiny, and you pull in there, and it's massive. Uh, and you, you, you drive in through this gate, and you stop your car, and you walk, and there's big, giant soldiers in uniforms with AK-47s and giant guns. And you walk in, and you show your ID, and they kind of make you wait for a little while. And then they make you go back to your car, and they drive you onto the CIA headquarters. And there's the front building, the Reagan building, which is the new one. And in the back, there's the other building that you don't get to go into. And you walk in, and it's this big, giant white room with the CIA thing, and it looks just like in the fucking movies. And on the wall, there's stars of uh, agents who died in the line of duty. And there's a book there that you can go and look at the book, and there's no names in the book. There's just a date. Because they're not allowed to write the name of the agent who died, even some of them from, like, the 40s. So it's like, June 7th, you know, 1949, no name. Uh, and I went in, and I've never in my life, and I was in my, one of my nice black suits that I wear to pitch movies, and I've never, ever, ever felt more like, like, do I reek of dope? And I was like, no, 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 I haven't smoked pot in, like, weeks. Yeah, like, do I, I smell like a fucking brewery? No, no, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, I haven't had anything to drink. Like, and, and I felt like a fraud. Like, I was just like, <laughs> somebody here is gonna, like, tackle me for something. Like... I went in and I led this workshop and it's, it's a group of, the CIA has 10,000 people who work there and so they have hobby groups. They have a group of people who build ships in bottles. They have a group of people who like cats. Uh, and they have a group of, the writers are called Invisible Ink and they write stuff, you know, they, and they, they, we sat around and like they, I told them screenplay structure and they asked interesting questions and the guy I've been talking to for like two years, Scott couldn't come that day. And he was so excited to talk to me. And he couldn't come because the North Koreans shot a missile that morning. And so he was busy. <laughs> and so his buddy Clint ran the meeting. And Clint was the guy who was one of the 30 agents who work on the dossier that they give the Obama every morning. Every morning at 6.30, they give him a dossier of like, this is what the fuck the CIA is up to, and this is what you need to be aware of in the world. Everybody there looks like a Marine, everybody. And, and, the, and, he was, and I was like, Obama, like, what do you think of him? And he was like, he reads it every day. He said, like, George, like, W, 
like weeks would go by where he didn't read it. And he said, like, Obama reads it every fucking day. And I was like, all right, that's cool. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I, I do this workshop and they give me a tour of the place and there's a CIA museum there. There's two. There's one that's the OSS, which is like the old World War II spies. And then there's a new one that has a whole wing of just Afghanistan when they went into Afghanistan after 9-11. And then the other one is like old-timey spy stuff. And it's like... There's a cigarette that's a, a camera. There's a, uh, like a, sp uh, the, the Russian umbrella that they killed that guy with. They have it, and it's on display. Um, there's a carp in a little pond that looks like a fucking carp, like at a Chinese restaurant. Like, it looks like a carp, but it swims around, and they push a button, and it goes, click, and it takes a picture, and it looks like a fish. And they have like the new models of the new spy planes that they have. It was really, really interesting. And before I left, Scott said, look, I can't have lunch with you, but I can sit with you during part of your lunch. And I was like, yeah, fucking A. Let's, let's, yeah, I want to meet you. I've been talking to you for a year. And so uh, we go up to the roof of the CIA and I ask him tons of questions. It's in the middle of a, a forest and they, they call them farm boys, farm boys, because they're on this farm out, in the, out away from DC. And I was like, yeah, the trees, there's all those trees out there. And he's like, yeah, because sound equipment doesn't work through trees. You can't park a mic out there and tape what we're saying because there's all those trees. And I was like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Like, what else can you tell me? And he said, okay, well, we don't do this anymore. So I can tell you this, we used to have a deal with Pepsi. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And he says, well, I, we used to have guys who'd have business cards that said Pepsi. Because in the 70s and 80s, Pepsi was opening places in China, in, in Japan, all over Europe. And so our guys would travel as people who work in sales for Pepsi. And they would go through customs and everything. I work for Pepsi. And then they would go to the Pepsi plant that they had just opened somewhere in China. And they would have an office there in the Pepsi plant. And everybody there thought they worked for Pepsi, but they were a CIA agent. And I was like, fucking hell. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. And, and as I walked out, I realized that all the soda machines are still Pepsi. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, fucking great. Like, so it was very, very interesting. And so this guy's been trying to get me there for like a year. And so I said, so like, it's really nice to meet you. Like, what do you write? And this guy is like, probably 60. He was probably like 6'1". He looked like if you saw him in like a Tom Clancy movie, you'd be like, oh, that's the bad guy. You know, like he's, he's like this big giant like marine guy with like a high tight gray hair. And like he, he looks like the villain in a spy movie, just like super CIA, the guy you least suspect, but of course is bad. And he was like, yeah, I, I think I have an idea for a movie that I think would do pretty good. And I was like, oh, okay. That was the last thing in the world I expected. And I was like, okay, what's your movie? And he said, zombies on a cruise ship. <laughs> and I was like, and the first thing I thought was, that's fucking great. You know, like the, the first thing I thought, yeah, they're trying. And then we talked about it for like 20 minutes. I was like, yeah, so yeah, they stop some port. They go to some little island they're not supposed to go to. They get bit. They don't want to get stuck on the island, so they don't tell the dock, and then it spreads. And I was like, fucking yeah, like that's great. And then talking to the guy, and I was like, so you write movies? He was like, yeah, I write movies, you know, nobody listens to them except my rabbits. And uh, I was like, you, you rabbits? He said, yeah, I got four pet rabbits, you know, I pitch them stuff. Uh, 
and, and he was great, and we're still friends. And like after that, I was like, oh, like everybody's in a costume. <laughs> I was like, every, every, I was like, everybody's pretending to be grown up. Very interesting, Scott. And I'm still trying to get zombies on a cruise ship made. <laughs> But people can't tell if zombies are over yet or still around. Thank you. This is Risk. This is, of course, the Sex Pistols behind me now. I cannot believe we've never used that song before, but according to Google, we have not. And uh, we just heard from Ben Grant. My goodness, you can hear in that story, he told that when Obama was still president. Feels like memories from another world sometimes. Okay, listen, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the best-selling author of My Underground American Dream. Julissa Arce is a contributor over at Crooked Media, and she shared this one at the Risk Live show that we do once a month at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Here she is now, Julissa Arce, with a story we call Para Papi. Um, so I'm Mexican, and that means a lot of different things to different people. To some people, it means that I'm a potentially dangerous criminal. Um, but growing up Mexican really just meant that my dad wished I had been born a boy. My oldest sister is 10 years older than me, and then five years after that, my middle sister was born. 
And five years after that, when I was coming along, I think my dad was really hoping that the third time would be the charm, but no such luck. So he was probably like, she'll have to do. And he proceeded to dress me in overalls and take me to soccer games and teach me all the names of his mechanic tools. So while girls were learning words like mom and chair, he was like, repeat after me, wrench. <laughs> My dad was a really wonderful dad, except when he drank. And every time he drank, I felt like I was losing a little bit of him to each sip that he took of his beer. But my dad also taught me things like to cook, and he made sure that I learned how to pay my bills on time. And the first time I got my period, it was my dad who took me to the store. And I was so embarrassed about going into the store that I made him go in there by himself. And he came out with like a year's supply of pads <laughs> of all different colors and sizes and brands. And I was like, Dad, I don't think I need that many. And he was like, I don't know, just take them. <laughs> My dad also taught me how to drive. We had this Oldsmobile Bravada that he would let me take around the apartment complex where we lived. And he would tell me like, don't use your left foot on the pedal because you can get confused and get in a car accident and make sure to keep both of your hands on the wheel. And he was really patient when he was teaching me things, and he kind of had to be patient with me. And he would say, you know, if you're going to learn how to drive, you need to learn how to change the oil and how to change the tire and what questions to ask the mechanic. And I was just thinking, like, can I just get AAA? That would be much easier. But I loved the fact that my dad wanted to teach me everything he would have taught a son especially because 10 years after I was born, my dad finally got his wish when my little brother was born. And I realized that this means that my parents were having children for 20 years. <laughs> um, my dad's childhood dream was to own a mechanic shop. And I promised him that when I was rich and famous, I would buy one for him. And in the meantime, we would hang out at his friend's mechanic shop. And I loved spending Saturday afternoons with him at the shop because that was the time for me and my dad to just hang out, the two of us. And I didn't have to share him with my sisters or with my little brother, especially with my little brother. And it was at this mechanic shop that he taught me how to listen to the sound of an engine, like rum, rum, and run, run. And those subtle differences were supposed to tell me if there was something wrong with the pressure leak or if there was a problem with the gas pump or the oil pump or something else I should know about cars. And one Saturday afternoon, we were done changing the oil in a car. And so I jumped into our truck and I listened to the radio and was doing some homework. And he went inside into the office space with his buddies to drink a couple beers and to play cards. And we'd done that before. He'd have a couple beers and then we'd go home. But this particular afternoon, I was sitting in the car and it was just taking really long for him to come back. And I'd finished my homework and I thought, he's taking like a long time to come back. But I also didn't wanna go like check on him because I wasn't allowed to go into the office space. So I didn't wanna get in trouble with him. But then it started getting dark outside, and I started getting even more worried. So I finally decided, even if I get in trouble, I gotta go see what's up with my dad. And I opened the door to the office, and I see him in the corner on a chair, like slouched over, and he's drooling, and like half his ass is not even on the chair. And I had never seen my dad this drunk, like ever. 
even though he drank almost every day, he was pretty almost neat about his drinking. He would drink a beer, a Budweiser, and kind of makes me laugh a little because when I think like who drinks Budweiser, it's Mexican dads who drink Budweisers. <laughs> and he'd drink his beer and then he'd crush the can and place it very neatly on the other side of his living room chair. So it was odd for me to see my dad so drunk. And then I noticed this man was looking at me kind of weird. I was 13 at the time and I was starting to get hips and I didn't have like huge boobs, but I had like this little round things on me. And I had never seen someone look at me that way and I didn't know what it meant, but just like instinctively I knew it wasn't good. And my skin was like crawling. So I ran to my dad and I shook him like, Papi, despiertate, like wake up. And I said Papi really loud so that everyone there knew that this was my dad and I wasn't there by myself. And he woke up and I took him to the car. I put him in the passenger seat and I got in the car, I locked the doors. And I was just thinking like, what am I gonna do? And then I noticed this man kind of kept looking out the window and it was making me so nervous and I just needed to get out of there, I had to leave. And my dad woke up and he was like, demanded to know why he was in the passenger seat, like, why am I here? And I was like, dad, you drank too much. And very casually, he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Aren't you hungry? Like, let's get you a pizza. And then he fell asleep. And I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? So I reasoned that even though I was 13 years old, I could drive us a couple of miles. Like we had done plenty of laps around the apartment complex, I thought. I put his seatbelt on and then I put my seatbelt on and I adjusted the mirrors just like he had taught me. And I took a deep breath and even though the engine was on, my heart was pumping so loud that I could hear it, like boom, boom, boom. And I thought my heart is gonna jump out of my chest right now from how hard it was pounding against my chest. But I backed out and I went onto the street just fine. But the more I drove, the more scared I got. And then I saw a traffic light and it was the first traffic light that I would cross. I had never gone across a traffic light, not even a stop sign. And it was red, so I stopped. And I saw this car zoom, zoom in front of me and I pondered where my life had gone so wrong. And that's when my dad woke up. And I thought he was gonna be furious. But I think he saw the panic in my eyes and realized what was happening. And so he just told me to stay calm. And he said, your left foot better not be on the pedal. And I was like, it's not daddy. And he says, that's my girl. And falls asleep again. And I smiled, and even though I was really angry with him for making me so scared, I smiled because I was making him proud, and I was putting all the things he taught me into practice. I somehow got us home, and I helped him to his living room chair, and he took out this like bunch of bills and said, I won, get yourself some pizza, get extra cheese, it's on me. And he fell asleep. And I realized that it was my dad who put me in this potentially dangerous situation. But oddly, it was also my dad who taught me everything I needed to know to get out of that situation. It was my dad's wish that I had been born a boy that made him empower me in a way that I have always felt like I can do anything a man can do. I came to live in the US when I was 11 years old. From the time I was three to the time I was 11, my parents lived in the US and I lived in Mexico. 
When I turned 14 years old, the visa that I used to come into the US expired, and that's when I became undocumented. And what that means is that I couldn't get any financial aid or scholarships to go to college. So my dad and my mom decided that they would go back to Mexico and take my little brother with them so that I could use the money from our funnel cake stand to pay for college. Because even though we made okay money selling funnel cakes, it definitely wasn't enough to pay for college and to support our family. So when I said bye to my mom and dad to go off to college, I didn't know when I would see them again. It wasn't like I could see them in the summer break or the winter break because all of a sudden there was this border that would separate us, a border that neither one of us could cross. So my parents went off to, back to Mexico, I went off to college, and eventually I graduated from college and I moved to New York City to start my job there. And one day, I went out with my friends and I had too much to drink, and I got this feeling like all I wanted to do was to talk to my dad, like I just needed to hear his voice. So when I got back to my apartment around four o'clock in the morning, I dialed to Mexico. And my dad picked up, and I said, uh, hola, papi. It's me. No, I, I, more, I more said it like, hola, papi, it's me. <laughs> and he was like, are you drunk? And he wasn't judgy about it. He, was, he just wanted to make sure that, one, I didn't do that all the time. And two, he was just happy that I was at home safely and talking to him. And we ended up having this really long heart-to-heart. And he apologized for the many times that he let his drinking become more important than being my dad, like the time he missed my high school graduation. And he remembered that day when I had driven for the first time in my life. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry for putting you in that position. And I said, it's okay, dad. It's like water under the bridge. I miss you so much. I can't wait to see you. And he said, soon, we'll see each other soon. And we hung up. Maybe two to three weeks after that, I get a phone call from my sister, who also lived in Mexico. And she says, hola, Juli. And the way she said it was just odd. And I immediately knew like something was wrong. So she proceeded to tell me that our dad was really sick and he was in the hospital and he'd been peeing blood. And in that moment, the whole universe stood still. And I didn't know what to do because I was still undocumented which meant that if I went to Mexico, I wasn't sure how I was gonna come back to my life in the US. Because the first time I came here, I came here on a plane with a visa, but this time I didn't have papers. So if I wanted to come back, I'd have to get smuggled in somehow. So my sister said she'd keep me posted, and I looked at flights, and I packed a suitcase, and I unpacked my suitcase, I packed it again. I talked to my mom who, Um, told me that I shouldn't risk it, that that's not what my dad would want. And apparently my dad had been in and out of the hospital for months, which is a piece of information no one cared to share with me. Because they said, for what? Like, you'll just worry. So at six o'clock the next day, at six o'clock in the morning, I called my dad's hospital room, and my mom put the phone to his ear, and I told him, like, Dad, I love you, I miss you. I, I, I reminded him that I forgave him. And, and I said, Daddy, I'm gonna be there soon. You have to wait for me. Like, I'll be there as soon as possible. And he couldn't talk back to me, but I could hear his breathing. 
it was heavy and it was difficult. The sound of his engine told me that it was really bad. Later, my sister told me that she had gone off to take a shower and when she came back to our dad's hospital room, she said, Daddy, I'm here. And then a second later, my dad took his last breath. And I never got to see him alive again. And it makes me so angry and so sad that this stupid immigration laws and this stupid border kept me from seeing my dad one more time. But everything he taught me to listen to the sound of the engine and to be nice and to pay my bills on time and to say I'm sorry, those are things I'll have with me always. So daddy, I'm sorry that I didn't make it. Thank you. That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is Birdie behind me now. Unless on the device you're listening to, there is nothing behind me now. And we just heard from Julissa Arce. She can be found on Twitter at Julissa Arce. That's J-U-L-I-S-S-A-A-R-C-E. Remember, you can find the tables of contents for every episode at the listen pages at risk-show.com. There are links there for all the storytellers and the bands, so you can look them up online. And there's also a keyword search function there. So if you're thinking to yourself, what was that story about cannibalism or whatever? You can look it up there and see if you can find it. Then you can email me and say shame on you, Kevin Allison, for indoctrinating everyone to become cannibals. Now, I'm going to list for you where Risk is happening next on November 9th. We are in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. November 10th, we're in Madison, Wisconsin for the first time ever at the High Noon Saloon. November 10th in Madison. November 11th. We're in Detroit at the Magic Bag. November 11th, we're in Detroit. November 14th, we are back at Littlefield in Brooklyn 
Come on out on November 14th to Littlefield in Brooklyn. November 18th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On December 2nd, we're in Phoenix, Arizona at the Valley Bar. The theme is jaw-dropping, and we're still taking pitches on that one. Go to the submissions page at risk-show.com, and you can always check where we're appearing live next at the touring page, the live shows page at risk-show.com. There's a lot of ways to support us here at Risk. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. You can tell your friends to download the show and tell them how to. You can become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. There's a lot of bonus content there. There are ad-free episodes there, depending on how much you're giving. Go to patreon.com slash risk and check out the different levels of perks and prizes for becoming a patron of ours there. Leaving a comment on iTunes, you know, going to iTunes podcasts and giving us five stars and giving us a rave review there, that brings a lot of attention to the show. And check out our school where we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do in-person workshops in New York and Los Angeles and Minneapolis. We do corporate workshops for all kinds of big businesses. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Marnaj, 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 marnaj.